and welcome to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast from right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week and the occasional special announcement or series. You can visit vineyardchurch.us and select Springbrook from the menu to learn more about us or to access our audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. Our scripture reading today comes from John 4, and uh, he is having me read verses 1 through 30. I will never apologize for reading too much scripture in this place, but get comfy. Uh, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and he returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of, I don't know how to pronounce it, Sikar, near the field that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, as a Samaritan, or soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please, give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Uh, Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, You would ask me, and I would give you living water. But, sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but anyone who drinks the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me why it is that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount, that place, where our ancestors worshiped. Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship while we Jews know all about him for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed, it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in a way, in that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Then, just then, his disciples came back, and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? What are you talking, why are you talking to her? The woman left the water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. This is the gospel of Christ. 
Thanks be to God. Come on out here. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good. Well, uh, as you may or may not know, today is my first solo sermon here at the Vineyard. Um, yeah, you can cheer for that if you want a little bit, but you got to keep up that amount of enthusiasm all the way through because I'm a little nervous, so inevitably I'll slip a few times today. Uh, with that being said, I feel it's only right to pray, so would you guys join me? Um, God, thank you for this place and these people, and uh, would you just be in the room today as I speak, would you just speak through me? And just let it be your words and not mine. Amen. Um, well, last week we started a series that Lindsay mentioned uh, we stole from the Anglican Church that is all about exploring what it means to follow Jesus into division or uh, broken and conflicted story. Lindsay sort of gave us a crash course on where we are heading in this series by using a, th- a framework of three different practices we are hoping that by the end of this series will at least make you kind of question the ways that you interact with God, Scripture, and the people around you. If not that, then you'll at least have a better understanding of what we're all about here at Springbrook Church, uh, because we really do believe these to be critically important. These practices, and I'll even number them for my note takers who didn't catch them last week, are these. Number one is to be curious. That means to listen to other stories and see the world through their eyes. Number two, be present, encounter others with authenticity and confidence. And then number three is to reimagine or find hope and opportunity in the places where we long to see change. Uh, We'll come back to those in a bit, and I know some of you are already thinking it. Is Chris always going to follow a three-point sermon style? And the answer is yes, I am. Uh, No, I'm kidding. Uh, I'm an Enneagram 7, so I'm too unorganized to do that every Sunday. Uh, The sermon topic today is crossing divides, so we're going to look at how to cross divides uh, or what divides we even encounter in our lives, and we're going to also examine our motivations for doing so through a few stories of people. So buckle up, because I joked about Lindsay uh, telling two stories last Sunday, and I'm about to tell three, so. Uh, The summer of my freshman year of college, back before Springbrook Vineyard was a thing, I was going to Maryville Vineyard, uh, like some of you, and... I heard that this guy named Adam Russell was coming to speak, and if you don't know who that is, uh, you're in the same boat I was in. You can ask Andrew Webb about it after the service. Um, All I did know was that Lindsay was pumped about it, Andrew was pumped about it, he he played music, so I I was in. Since this was about 10 years ago, I don't really remember anything he talked about except that as he was winding down his sermon, he said something along the lines of this. Uh, If the only joy you find in the gospel is knowing that you'll go to heaven when you die, you're missing out on about 99% of the gospel. Um, Paul's here for minds being blown. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to say that again. If the only joy you find in the gospel is knowing that you'll go to heaven when you die, you're missing out on about 99% of the gospel. Um, That's heavy, and it was pretty convincing for a person like me who at that point had spent a lot of my time and energy trying to be good enough for Jesus. I was raised in a church culture that placed a lot of emphasis on heaven and, quote, living right to die right. Seriously, they said that every Sunday. Um, (laughs) Hashtag church drama. Uh, I'm not saying that my childhood church 
only focused on heaven or that uh, focusing on heaven is even a bad thing, but I am saying that repetition is a very powerful tool for the young mind. Um, Still using that teaching degree I'm paying for. Uh, So naturally, my young mind took this information and formed it into the theory that the joy of following Jesus was realized when you die and get to meet him. Uh, And I gotta be honest, that approach makes living in a broken world super uh, easy. I don't have to worry about anything or anyone's mess because I'm on my way to heaven and that's just gonna slow me down. That's just gonna get in my way. Um, But then I hear Adam basically saying, the gospel changes every part of your life right now. Such a seemingly obvious message that was so formative for me. And it really is true, right? Uh, When we turn our hearts to God, when we tune our hearts to the frequency they were created for, everything changes. Relationships with others, our emotions and the way we handle them, everything. We can't just beeline our way through life anymore on our journey to heaven because that's not what we see Jesus doing in in the Bible. I guess the million dollar question is then, how do we get there? And not theirs in heaven, uh, there is in a changed life. In John chapter 4, we find Jesus, uh, I think, answering this question. He's crossing divides by speaking to women who he really shouldn't have been speaking to. And not, that's not just my opinion. Since she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew, he is crossing the divide of race that you definitely didn't cross. At this time, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Um, he's crossing the divide of gender, which was something else you didn't do at this time. Uh, men and women outside of family, especially in public, did not talk to one another. And by doing both of these, he's crossing a social and cultural divide. And since he knows this woman's past and he is Jesus, he's crossing a moral divide. So race, gender, social, cultural, moral divides all crossed. I don't know about you, but I personally wouldn't feel very comfortable in that situation. Not only do I really enjoy avoiding conflict, but uh, I also really have to be in the mood to talk to strangers. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that as a pastor now, but uh, I do. A lot of times I find, my, I find it much easier to just kind of bury my head and move efficiently throughout my day doing the things that need to be done without the distraction of long conversation. In fact, just this past week, Lindsay and I were at Vienna talking about this sermon series, and uh, I, came, I came ready to get work done. I showed up. I wanted to meet. We ended up talking to two separate people for 30 minutes. Lindsay ended up talking to two separate people for 30 minutes. And I wasn't really in the mood to talk about random stuff. I wanted to get work done. And I don't really think I'm alone in that, right? I think that's how the term small talk came to be. We ask someone how they are. We exchange a quick couple of words and get uncomfortable if it goes much further than that. But that's not what we see Jesus doing in this story. In fact, his longest recorded conversation with anyone was not with a disciple. It wasn't with a minister or some great person of faith. It was with this woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. And what does he do in this conversation? He stills the three practices the Angelicans teach us. No, I'm just kidding. They stole them from him. He's present with her. (laughs) Nobody caught that. Um, (laughs) That's how great the Angelicans are. They were like, yeah, maybe. Uh, He's present with her. He's curious, and he reimagines her story. He's present. He speaks to her like a human and not someone with some sort of unmentionable elephant-in-the-room type of past. He's not scanning around looking for a way to get out of the conversation. He's not checking his watch, waiting for the disciples to come back from town. He engages her in conversation and then re-engages her when she tries to change the subject about three times. 
Um, for me, being present is absolutely the hardest of the three practices. I'm the type of person that as soon as I have mastered a hobby, mastered feels like a, an overstatement, I'm already planning out ways to fund the next hobby. Um, I start projects and I don't finish them because I get distracted by the next one. This is my wife's favorite quality that I possess. Um, Worse than that, I do it with people. A lot of times I have trouble remembering people's names because by the time they're telling me, I'm already thinking of the next thing I wanna ask them or I'm deciding what their story is instead of listening to them tell me what their story is. Um, But Jesus, who has perfect discernment and already knows everything that this woman is about to respond, he still listens anyways, he's present. Secondly, he's curious about her. In fact, some might argue that he came to this town just to talk to her. It was not on the way to where he was going. He didn't have to go there in the literal sense. Um, some historians believe it might have even added up to three days of, his, of travel for him to get to where he was actually trying to go. Um, so it wouldn't have been the easy or convenient or efficient approach. Curiosity is another very hard practice. I already mentioned how I love efficiency. Um, If you ask my wife, who does all the cooking in our house, she would probably tell you it's me. What she may or may not tell you is because I don't let her in the kitchen when I'm cooking. Uh, I can do it. I'm efficient. I'm fast. I know what I'm doing. And sometimes, I mean, I've seen her try to cut hard vegetables with a paring knife, and that's how you lose a finger. So, you know, I just am efficient. I can do it. Um, But how many lost opportunities have I had with the people around me because instead of being curious, I already knew everything? Um, I didn't ask the question because I already knew the answer. Finally, and most importantly, he reimagines her story with her. He sees every fault in this woman. He knows exactly why she's visiting this well in the heat of the day. He knows about her past and current relationship status and the brokenness uh, that that has caused in her life. And yet he sees an opportunity for change. And the reality is change happens with this woman. Um, This woman who at the start of the story would have likely walked on the other side of the street to avoid the people in her town or avoided eye contact with her peers because of the shame and embarrassment she felt. This same woman runs back into the same town and addresses everyone. And not because her past was magically erased or because Jesus gave her tips and tricks to spin it in a positive light. She's no longer worried about judgment because even though this man knows everything about her, she's been met by grace. And just like with Jesus, reimagining doesn't mean forcing someone to be something they aren't or twisting the narrative of their life to be more pleasant. Uh, It's not convincing someone what they should or shouldn't do to please us or make our lives easier or offer unsolicited advice. Um, Reimagining means dreaming of all that we could be when we encounter the things that our hearts and minds and souls were made for. It's asking the question, who does God say that I am? And how do I step into that? When we seek those three practices, being present, being curious, and reimagining, we are seeking attributes of Jesus in this story. His example challenges us to find out what fears and prejudices stop us engaging with others and to realize that others might have barriers that stop them engaging with us. In other words, when someone is willing to cross a divide with us, sometimes it empowers us to cross divides with them. That's what we see in this passage. A woman who crosses divides because Jesus crossed them with her. 
Okay, I want to put a pin in our Bible story for just a second and look at another story. Last week, um, we kind of talked about, or we showed a video of some volunteers here at this church who talked about the conflicts or divides that they see in their world. And I think we could relate to a lot of those. Um, But today we're going to show one from all the way across the world that might give a little more perspective on this uh, Jew-Samaritan conflict that I think a lot of us probably cannot relate to um, or have experienced. So his name's Sammy. The video is going to look like a screenshot for at least 15 seconds. He can sit very still. Uh, I promise it's not. So it's working, I think. So let's see what he has to say. (laughs) We live under occupation. I grew up in a situation where we witnessed and experienced the occupation every single day of my life. My father was principal of an orphanage where the Israeli army would actually raid the orphanage. So it was a very direct experience of tear gas, rubber bullets, yelling, shouting, night raids that we had. And and for me, I grew up in this reality. And, and the narrative around this reality is that you are justified in your hatred and resentful towards them who are doing this to you. I could not understand how can you make peace with a people that want to destroy you. They don't even want to make peace with us. So as a Palestinian activist, I was very committed to nonviolent resistance to end occupation. But at the same time, I was always challenged with what is really this conflict about? Is there something hidden that we are not aware of that we need to address? But I never knew what it, what it was. And then American Jewish friends of mine invited me to this retreat called the Bearing Witness Retreat. And this retreat happens every year, and they organize it in the death camps of Auschwitz and Bergenau in Poland. As Palestinians, we don't deny the Holocaust, but we don't affiliate ourselves with it. It's not our story, it's not our narrative. It has nothing to do with us. It's in the past. The reality of the occupation is what we live in now. Uh, But I decided to go there. And to be honest, that experience completely turned my life around. For several days, we toured the campus itself, the location itself, the death camp, and saw everything that happened there. At one point, three of us decided to do something that was very unique. Myself as a Palestinian Christian, an American Jew, and a Turkish Muslim decided to spend the night in what's called the children's bunker and it's a November night and we have all the warm clothes and blankets and sleeping bags and we were freezing and just to imagine what those children who had nothing went through and experienced and that was I think one of the deepest experiences that I had in my life. And so my whole life was turned around by this experience. Unless we address the traumas of the communities of this land, we will never achieve any real sense of peace. We will always look towards the other with mistrust, with doubt, with having hidden agendas and hidden tensions that will limit any scope of peacemaking that we could do with them. Now, when I go to a checkpoint and I see an Israeli soldier with a gun, and he could even point this gun towards me. I would engage. I would ask, 
the questions. Tell me your story. Tell me more about you. And so even if he's coming, yelling at me and shouting at me, if there is an opportunity to create that space, this is what I do. You know, in science they say one case can make or destroy a whole theory. So if the theory that people have that Palestinians and Israelis hate each other, you need one example to show that this theory is wrong. And I've seen hundreds of examples that prove that this theory is wrong. Palestinians and Israelis are living in conflict, are living in a time when there is hatred and resentment, but this is not embedded in us as a people. Jesus never said, negotiate a peace treaty with your enemy. He never said, resolve your conflict with your enemy. He never said, reach a political settlement with your enemy. You want to follow me? Then you follow my commandment. You love your enemy. And for me, that's become my journey. Pretty powerful story. Um, I just have a few takeaways. When I, when Lindsay told me about that video and I was going to watch it for the first time between a, a Palestinian and an Israeli conflict, I thought to myself, uh, I don't think this can be very relatable to me. Um, but then he says, when you grow up in this reality, you are justified in your hatred and resentment. And uh, I felt that. Haven't we all done that? Justified ourselves in our hatred and resentment? Uh, someone wrongs us, so we construct an argument in our head as to why they are wrong, and we are right, and we hold on to it. Lindsay talked last week about the bike rider in the park, but I do that with people I know and love. Um, I can't tell you how many arguments that I have constructed in a car ride home as I'm reliving a conversation angrily, um, because I always win those arguments, because <laughs> I'm by myself. The person's not there. And uh, the really bad news is we also live in a world that would rather have us focus on the divide or the conflict than the person in front of us. We, we subscribe to one side of the political spectrum. We judge religious denominations. There's sexism, racism, classism, ageism. We literally have algorithms in our phones that learn about us and show us more of what we want to see so that we can further embed ourselves into our opinions. We justify our hatred or disdain before we even realize we've done it. These practices really aren't easy. Uh, they are actually really very hard. Lindsay may be the most curious person I've ever met, sometimes to the point where it's annoying, you know? Um, just agree with me sometimes. You don't have to ask me five more questions about what I think. Just think it with me. Um, but I think even Lindsay would tell you that being curious is a dangerous game. Um, being present and reimagining are dangerous games. Sometimes you find yourself trapped in a sauna with a guy that wants to talk about politics, or you hold your meetings up for an hour by talking to the whole town. Um, but aren't those practices worth it? Uh, aren't, aren't the risks of asking the wrong questions at the wrong time or looking weird to your friends and family, aren't those outweighed by the reward? Um, the difference course is it like this. And there's a quote for this. Uh, in our society, it is easy to distrust and fear those who are different from us. We often find ourselves in echo chambers 
drawn to voices that reinforce our own perspective. It is increasingly easy to avoid or shut out those who make us uncomfortable or fearful, creating a dividing wall between us. But we are called to respond differently and to be curious about others. As people made in the image of God, just like we are. We're called to respond differently. Um, If the theory is that these people groups fill in the blank, like Sammy said, hate each other, liberals and conservatives hate each other, this generation hates that generation, how can we be the one example to show that this theory is wrong? If being a follower of Jesus means that we don't just have the future hope of heaven and that our lives are changed right now, and that part of that change means crossing borders to pursue peacemaking with the people around us that look, think, speak, and act differently, how do we do it? Um, because again, I think we've pretty well established that it's, it doesn't feel like a natural thing to do most days. Um, as I wrap up, I think we can find the answer back in our text where we left off. When we get to verse 16 in chapter four, we read that Jesus asks this woman to go and get her husband. But he knows her story. Um, why would he do that? When I read that, I can almost think of that as passive aggressive or rude or intrusive. Uh, but Jesus he really isn't any of those things. So, so we have to ask her, we have to ask, why does he ask her to go and get her husband? And I have a theory. I think he's trying to show this woman that this everlasting life that he's offering, this living water, this free gift, he calls it in the scripture, she already knows deep down that she needs it because she's looking for it in the wrong places. She's already looking for it in relationships. Five of them, six of them, to be exact. Um, She's been led by her emotions and they have fixed themselves on things that historically can never satisfy. Does that sound familiar? Um, So he's offering her an alternative. He's inviting her into the opportunity to be curious, to be present, and to reimagine her life in view of his grace. And I think that's where we have to start. Uh, I know that's where I have to start. I have to remember God's grace who took a sinner like me and called me his son, who takes sinners like us and calls us sons and daughters. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did, and he still loves us. Uh, If we can't remember that, then what do we really have to offer to others when we cross the divide anyways? What do we place our hope in that isn't fleeting or temporary? And maybe the deeper question is, uh, will we really cross the divides to begin with if we can't remember that? Every week here, we take some time to do something called uh, Selah. Before this week, I actually didn't know this, but the word Selah appears in the Psalms 71 times. It's almost like we do things around here for a reason. (laughs) Uh, And it's a time that you read, and when you see Selah, you pause and you reflect You take a second to meditate on the verses and what God is showing to you or what you can learn from them, and then you listen for how to respond. So let's spend a few minutes doing that, Um, remembering that by God's grace, we are empowered to cross divides that seem uncrossable, that through God's grace, we become a little more curious, a little more present, and we start to reimagine a world around us that just might be able to get by with a few less walls.